0: Hi, We the People listeners. This episode is brought to you by Axios. Are you tired of the hidden and not-so-hidden agendas in your news? Do you want just the facts? There's no better way to get an unbiased view of the day's top stories than Axios AM, and you can do it in under 10 minutes or less. Get the news you can't afford to miss without the spin. Sign up for Axios AM at signup.axios.com. That's signup.axios.com.
1: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Recently, President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohn was sentenced to three years in prison for pleading guilty to several crimes, including violations of campaign finance laws. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss those campaign finance violations and their possible implications for President Trump. And joining us are two of America's leading election law and campaign finance experts, great friends of the We the People podcast, and I'm so honored to welcome both of you back. Rick Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He was the founding co-editor of the Election Law Journal and blogs at the Election Law Blog. Rick, thank you so much for joining.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Bradley Smith is chairman and founder of the Institute for Free Speech, the Josiah H. Blackmore, the second Shirley M. Nault, designated professor of law at Capitol University Law School and chairman of the Senator for Competitive Politics. He served on the Federal Elections Commission from 2000 to 2005. Brad, welcome back.
3: Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure.
1: OK, let's jump right in. Rick, uh, Michael Cohn recently pled guilty to violating the Federal Election Campaign Act of 19 19- 71. Tell us what he pled guilty to and what the implications are for President Trump's liability for similar charges.
2: Sure. Well, first, it's important to note that he pled guilty to a number of different crimes, only uh, a couple of them related to campaign finance. And so he was sentenced to 36 months for the sum total of the criminal activity that he engaged in. In relation to campaign finance, Uh, According to um, the documents that have been filed, including a sentencing memo from the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. And and I should say parenthetically here that Cohn was uh, sentenced for charges brought by the Mueller team, the special counsel, related to covering up information related to contacts between the Trump Organization and Russia. But the campaign finance charges came from the Southern District of New York. They were not part of the special counsel. And uh, basically, the Cohen uh, campaign finance problems involved paying off two women who allegedly had uh, sexual encounters with Donald Trump. Uh, One of the payments was facilitated through the National Enquirer, a uh, tabloid magazine, which made a payment to a woman named Karen McDougall. Uh, to get her to sell her story exclusively to the uh, National Enquirer. And it was this idea of catch and kill. They would pay for the story and then never run it, and she would have an exclusive and never be able to run it again. Cohn had uh, assured the editor at the National Enquirer that they would be reimbursed for these payments. Then there was a separate payment uh, to Stormy Daniels. This is the one that's probably gotten more attention. For a long time, uh, Daniels had been seeking payment to keep quiet. Cohn didn't agree to make any payments. But then uh, around october twenty fifth, two thousand and sixteen, just days before the election, when Stormy Daniels lawyer indicated that she was about to give an exclusive interview to a media outlet, Cohn uh, agreed to a payment, took out a loan against the uh, against his home created a limited liability corporation which paid about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to Daniels for her silence, and then uh, build the Trump organization eventually to get this money back along with a commission for legal and technical services in payments structured, a monthly payments of I think thirty five thousand dollars a month. Now, both of these were found to be campaign related payments, that is, payments that would not have been made but for uh, the campaign. Under those circumstances, when you have a, uh, someone making a payment for a campaign in coordination with the campaign, and the sentencing uh, documents say that this was done at the direction of and cooperation with uh, Donald Trump and with the campaign, that would be an illegal, in-kind contribution from Cohn. You could only give $2,700 to a campaign. This was much more than that. Just looking at the Stormy Daniels payment, that was $130,000. Then you look at the fact that it was not a reported contribution. You look at the fact that uh, a corporation... Uh, may have been making the payments, uh, which would be an illegal corporate contribution. So you've got both excessive in-kind contributions, corporate contributions, as well as unreported contributions and expenditures. Uh, And these were never uh, reported by the campaign in any sense, I think, even through today. And so that's the basis for uh, the violations. When they're willful violations, when you willfully violate the campaign laws rather than simply inadvertently doing it, as campaigns do all the time, by forgetting to file something on time or making a slight paperwork error. Those are handled civilly. But when you willfully evade the campaign finance laws, that can subject you to criminal liability. And that's the part of the reason that Cohn was sentenced to some prison time for his activities.
1: Thank you very much for that clear and very helpful introduction. So, Brad, um, Rick has said that potential crimes uh, to which Cohn has pled guilty include unlawful contributions, failure to report transactions, and unlawful uh, corporate contributions. To what extent might the president be liable for similar offenses? He has tweeted that it was a simple private transaction, lawyer's liability if he made mistake, not me. Rick suggests that if the uh, violations were willful. They might raise criminal liability. Walk us through uh, the arguments for and against liability for President Trump on any of these issues.
3: Sure. I mean, the basic, simple argument is that if Cohn did these things with Trump's knowledge and at his direction, which is what is are the what he's pled to, uh, then. Trump would be involved in a, in the same knowing and willful violations of the law, and potentially subject to criminal penalties. And you've got a whole other issue whether you can indict a sitting president and so on. But let's just talk about the the campaign finance violations. However, I will say that my view is that none of these things are, in fact, campaign finance uh, violations, and there's a fairly simple reason for that. Uh, they're not campaign expenses, uh, and I think intuitively, you know, if we ask most people, do you think that paying hush money to a former mistress as a campaign expense, they would say no. But there's actually a basis for this in the statute, and I think it's the correct basis in the statute. The uh, prosecutor the U.S. attorney is relying very heavily on language in the statute that says anything that's done for the purpose of influencing an election is an expenditure and therefore subject to all these rules. But in fact, we know that uh, that language is not to be taken literally. That is all kinds of things are done for the purpose of influencing elections that are not campaign expenditures. And they go down to the most mundane things. When the candidate gets up in the morning and puts on his suit so he looks good on the campaign trail, that suit is not a campaign expenditure. When he drives into his office, his gas is not a campaign expenditure. Um, And we can get into more serious things. For example... If a businessman has many lawsuits pending against his uh, businesses or him personally, and that's that's not uncommon, or say a candidate uh, is in divorce proceedings, and uh, let's take the business example. He says, look, uh, I think these cases are have no merit, but I don't want them out there. I don't want the press jumping on them while I'm running for office and saying I'm a cold-hearted tycoon. So he tells his lawyer, settle those cases. Those, those payments are not campaign finance uh, expenditures. They are not campaign expenditures. If they were note, they'd have to be paid with campaign money. And that's exactly what we don't want happening, which is uh, somebody using campaign funds to pay for personal expenses that arise from things outside of the campaign. And that's the same thing with, for example, the payments to Daniels and McDougal. The obligations arise From outside of the campaign not from in the campaign Uh, they both were for events occurring far in advance now people say yeah but he only paid him because he he was near the campaign that really uh doesn't matter first we don't know exactly why he paid him but beyond that the the law says that uh it has to be if the obligation would exist irrespective of the campaign then it's not a campaign expenditure this is another part of the law that the u.s attorney seems to want to ignore um so uh in in this case you know to the extent trump has an obligation to pay this it arises from things that occurred long before the campaign the definition the law is intended to get at the things we think of as campaigning buying television ads paying for bumper stickers office space hiring a campaign manager getting phones for your staff and that sort of thing so i just don't think there's anything there when the fec considered this uh implementing regulations for this part of the law specifically rejected uh, language that would have held that an expenditure that was primarily for the campaign was a campaign expenditure. It said, no, it has to exist only because of the campaign. So again, the underlying events here are not campaign related. And thus, I I don't think there's any uh, campaign liability here at all. I do stress I'm not talking about whether Michael Cohen had legal Ethical duties as a lawyer, whether there's abuses of corporate trust, whether there might be ethical laws that are violated. There are also disclosure laws for political candidates. But purely from a campaign finance standpoint, uh, I don't see it. And I think that in the past, the FEC has not interpreted it this way. Uh, In the John Edwards case, uh, some years ago, John Edwards had supporters who paid a mistress of his for her. Uh, silence. Uh, he was not convicted in court, although he was indicted, but he was not convicted in court. And I know at that time, two uh, former, two other former FEC chairs, Scott Thomas and Don Lenhart, testified much with the understanding I'm offering today that this is simply, maybe unseemly, but it's not an illegal campaign expenditure.
1: Rick, your response to Brad's uh, two points. First, that the statute uh, does not consider campaign expenses, obligations that exist independently of the campaign, and secondly, the relevance of the Edwards case?
2: Sure. So I do think that the Edwards case is an important precedent here because we do know that these same kinds of arguments were made before the trial in the Edwards case, and the court rejected them. The court said that, in fact, uh, if these payments were being made... Uh, because of, think of kind of a a but-for test as we uh, use in tort law, would would you have made these payments but for the campaign, Uh, then these should be treated as campaign-related. So even though the jury hung on the question of whether or not that was the, the factual case in the Edwards case, whether or not these payments were made for campaign reasons rather than to protect Edward's personal reputation, the court accepted the idea that um, in certain circumstances, such payments can count uh, in this way. And of course, Cohn's lawyers uh, and Cohn agreed to plead guilty to this. And we know that the federal district court accepted this. If this were an illegitimate theory, then the the court presumably would not have accepted these kinds of arguments as a basis for uh, for a campaign um, violation. And we know that, uh, at least from what Cohn has pled guilty to, uh, that if you look at the timing of the Stormy Daniels payment, uh, there was no interest in making a payment to her until it was close to the election. The election was very, uh, a very tight election at that point, October 25th, 2016, You know, just days before the presidential election. Stormy Daniels threatens to go on TV and talk about this, and now the payment's going to be made. I mean, we know that... Um, uh, not only uh, has had Donald Trump had extramarital affairs before and bragged about them uh, uh, and didn't seem to really care about his general reputation, all of a sudden these payments are being made at the time before the election. I'm not saying that if uh, Trump were ever indicted that he would necessarily be found guilty. Uh, as Brad mentioned, you need to prove a willful violation, and just because uh, Cohn agreed to plead guilty to this doesn't prove that that Trump did it. But I certainly think there would be enough here to go to a jury on this question of whether or not these were uh, payments that would have been made uh, irrespective of the campaign. And I think there's pretty good evidence that th- that they would not have been. And so then the question is, um, what do we do about that? Is is Trump really an unindicted co-conspirator here? Is the uh, Southern District of New York going to potentially bring charges against him. And we don't know where this goes next. We do know that the National Enquirer, which was involved in this, uh, and the uh, I think it's the owner uh, or the publisher, David Pecker, was given immunity in relation to this. So it could be that there's going to be more that comes out. Uh, and it could be that uh, for reasons unrelated to campaign finance law, that a sitting president wouldn't be indicted. But Certainly, there seems to be enough here, and I just point to one other uh, example of something that's um, just completely unrelated, just to show you how this would be handled in uh, in in the normal course of things. Uh, there is a, a person who was um, uh, there was a person who was uh, um, uh, elected to Congress, a Republican from Florida, uh, by the name of uh, Ross Spano. And he received uh, $180,000 in loans, personal loans from friends um, to help run his campaign. And now he is potentially facing uh, criminal liability for failing to report those loans. Uh, so we know that these things are taken very seriously uh, by, uh, by both uh, the Federal Election Commission and by uh, prosecutors. And so I think if this were not the president, this would not be a difficult case. There would certainly be enough here to move forward and then the question would be what would a jury think about this.
1: Thanks so much for that. Brad, if you were to evaluate the Edwards and Trump cases, which is stronger? In the Edwards case, the payments to the district took place as he was ending his candidacy, the payments to uh, Trump's alleged mistresses came ahead of the election. Prosecutors and Edwards had little corroboration. Here, Cohn has corroborated. Is, would, the, would a potential case against Trump be stronger or weaker? And also, what are your thoughts about the Spano case, which uh, Rick mentioned as well? Uh,
4: you know, I really couldn't say which case is stronger. I mean, there are some differences. For the most part, though, they're, they're very similar cases in which there doesn't seem to be much denial of the basic fact that people were paying money in order to help a candidate. Uh, be a stronger candidate in the future for the purpose of influencing the election. But I, I do think I, I want to respond a little bit to uh, what you're Rick, Rick made the point that obviously the district court here let Cohen plead to this, And uh, the district court, in the Edwards case, let the case go to a jury. On the other hand, what's very important to note is that we've never had an appellate ruling on this specific issue in interpreting the contribution to a campaign. But what we have had uh, are a number of appellate rulings interpreting the for the purpose of influencing language in other contexts of the law. And there the court has always struck down broad interpretations. It says, no, and for the purpose of influencing the election, cannot literally mean anything for the purpose of influencing the election. And it's taken a very narrow view. For example, if you do expenditures to the public, uh, for those to count, they have to normally include express advocacy words of vote for, vote against, support, defeat. Very, very precise in order to get there. And the court has done that in, and the Supreme Court has done that in a number of cases, as have the appellate courts. So, you know, I keep going back here, I mean, I think, to me, one of the real problems here is a lot of people are very convinced that Donald Trump is a uniquely bad person and a unique threat to American democracy who needs to be removed from office however possible. But, you know, my basic view is that the the real threat comes from stretching laws in ways that they are not intended to be used to try to get somebody simply because we see that person as uniquely bad.
0: We the people will be back after these messages. There are hundreds of thousands of cases in litigation every day in the United States court system. Most of these cases will never reach the media's attention. These are not those cases. The cases explored on Wondery's podcast, Legal Wars, are the ones that have riveted the nation and made a real impact on society. On Legal Wars, host Hill Harper gives you behind-the-scenes access into some of the most famous cases to have ever graced America's courtrooms. You probably know Hill Harper as an actor, but he's actually a Harvard Law School grad, too. Pretty impressive. Hill takes you inside the cases that have riveted worldwide attention, like the Rodney King trial that sparked riots in LA, the World Trade Center insurance case sparked by the tragic events of 9-11, And in the season that I just finished listening to, the fascinating, surprising story of Hulk Hogan's takedown of gossip site Gawker. To hear about these cases and more, go subscribe to Legal Wars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.
1: Rick, uh, response to the argument that the interpretation of uh, the law should be narrower rather than strict. Which way might the Supreme Court go on this hypothetically? Uh, in the McDougal case, they, they argued for rather strict definition of corruption. And then put on the table, please, the case of Donald Trump Jr. and what his potential liability to campaign finance violations might be.
2: Sure. So I do think that um, uh, there are reasons under the First Amendment, for example, for reading certain campaign finance provisions in a narrow way to make sure that we can have um, rigorous, competitive elections. But but I do think that uh, given that we have the precedent of the Edwards prosecution, uh, which Trump himself had commented on at the time on Twitter and elsewhere— um, it's, it, it was pretty well established that these kinds of payments could be campaign-related uh, uh, in appropriate circumstances. And I, I don't think it would require a huge stretch of the law to say that if these payments were made only but for the campaign, that they are uh, expenses that would be reportable as campaign expenses and that you could not make an excessive contribution or an illegal personal loan uh, to uh, pay for them. Now, the Don Jr., Situation, uh, which has been out of the news recently, but may come back up to the extent that the Mueller investigation goes there. Uh, this relates to a, a meeting uh, that took place uh, during the campaign at the Trump Tower, where uh, we don't know everything, but supposedly uh, uh, dirt was being offered, information was being offered from representatives of the Russian government to the campaign. And the question there would be whether the um, provision of this information would count as a thing of value being given by a foreign entity to a campaign. That would be an illegal uh, foreign contribution to the campaign. It could potentially be um, an illegal foreign expenditure that, the, uh, uh, that Don Jr. and maybe Manafort and some others helped to facilitate. Uh, there, I think, uh, again, we don't have all of the facts. There, I think there's a more serious First Amendment question as to whether treating information as a thing of value uh, would run into First Amendment problems. Uh, and I think you know that's something that uh, has not been fully tested. I, I remember when this issue hit back last summer, I was looking at some old Federal Election Commission rulings, and there was uh, a, a one involving the provision of polling data. One, one candidate was running against another candidate, that uh, first candidate drops out has polling data and offers it to the other campaign and the court said well that information is a thing of value that needs to be subject to the reporting rules and the contribution rules but i think this is going to be the next big issue to the extent that um, the special counsel or another federal prosecutor goes after don jr i think it's going to be a big question as to whether or not the provision of this information could be considered a thing of value that a foreign government could not contribute to or uh, expend its resources on in, in relation to the 2016 presidential election.
1: Thanks very much for that. Brad, your thoughts on the possibility that the provision of information from Russia could be considered a thing of value in violation of the campaign finance laws? Is that a strong or a weak uh, argument?
4: Well, a thing of value, of course, is a is a broad term and can mean a great many things. Certainly, uh, polling data is something that goes stale quickly uh, the other thing we need to remember here, and, and that basically was saying, yes, I think it could be considered a thing of value, but it's going to depend on the circumstances. The other thing that needs to remember remembered here, though, are there are a number of allegations throwing about to they solicit foreign contributions and so on. And the first thing is you have to actually solicit. So just taking a meeting with someone to find out what they have, what they're offering, again, is not a violation of the law. And note that, for example, it's not a violation to pay a foreign entity to obtain information that, for example, remember the Clinton campaign paid a British citizen uh, to spy steel to go out and gather dirt on Trump. Uh, so you can pay foreign citizens for information that they might give you. So uh, to me, that's where that case is really going to hinge, is um, uh, were there solicitations and, and were things uh, delivered that were that were of value and not really so much on whether a specific items such as polling data might be considered in value. One of the problems here too, I I do want to mention again You know, in in referring to Cohen, Rick mentioned, he said, if these these contributions were made solely for the campaign, they could count. Again, I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong as a matter of reading the statute. But I do think that even if we were to read the statute that way and say that it had to do with the intent of the spender or the donor, rather than a a more objective test. It should be noted that Cohen, in his testimony, in his sentencing memo, he says that the reason he made the payments were to prevent uh, uh, the uh, election narrative before the election, and, and he puts an emphasis on this in the original, and because they would cause personal embarrassment to client one and his family. And that takes us back to this key point here that, you know, we're looking for things that exist because you're running for office, We're not The campaign finance laws are not a catch-all to pry into the lives of candidates and to force them to reveal everything about their finances and what they spend money on. They're about people who are paying for campaigns, polling, ads, office space, staff, the kinds of things that if you ask the person, why did you give that candidate money, he would say, I gave him money to pay for those things. And so, again, I, I I really dislike this notion that, you know, a law, maybe we can make this fit, and, and some person is so uniquely bad we're going to go get him. I think we need to remember, you know, that the admonitions of Thomas Moore that you don't want to uh, do this because one day the law is going to turn, be turned around and used uh, against somebody who you don't think is quite such a bad person.
1: Thanks for that. Well, Rick, thoughts on, you know, we've understood from this excellent discussion that it might be a close case if it went to a jury, but Brad said that the uh, provision should be read narrowly rather than broadly. Uh, What's your thoughts about that? And then let's put on the table, if we can, a related case, uh, but which brings us to a different topic. That is the challenge to the a uh, federal law that bans foreign involvement in U.S. elections. It's being challenged by Ravi Singh, an Illinois-based political consultant who says that it's unconstitutional and Congress can't regulate the role played by non-citizens in state and local elections. And some say that that's a threat to a law seen as the backbone of Mueller's probe of Russian election interference.
2: Sure. So I, I, mean, I, think, I think I've think i made my points. And I think Brad and I are not going to get any further on this question of whether or not uh, the law can be read to cover these kind of payments in appropriate circumstances and, and uh, you know I certainly uh, politically was much closer to John Edwards than to Donald Trump but I, I thought that the prosecution made sense to the extent that uh, they could actually make their case the problem in that case was that uh, one of the uh, donors was dead and the other one was I think over hundred years old and wasn't available to testify uh, and so you know there was a problem of proof in that case uh, here we don't know exactly what the, the proof is. Uh, on the foreign question, uh, I don't think that the case that the Ninth Circuit is now considering uh, out of San Diego is one that would really threaten the Mueller probe, which involves uh, money that is being um, uh, the Mueller probe involves money that is being spent to influence or, or uh, information being given to influence federal elections. Um, the the in the in the other case that you just referenced. The question is whether or not uh, federal prosecutors can go after uh, someone for making illegal foreign contributions in state and local elections. That raises a federalism question. The argument's really under the 10th Amendment and whether the federal government has the power to um, make these things crimes. I think it probably does, uh, but that's really a, a question of Congress's power to criminalize activity in state and local elections. I know that there's a Federal Election Commission ruling which construed the um, the federal foreign spending ban not to apply to ballot measure elections out here in, in California. Uh, so there might be something to that, but I, um, I really do think that uh, regardless of what the Ninth Circuit or what the Supreme Court might do in that case, it would have no impact on the kinds of campaign finance questions that have come up in the Mueller probe and in the related probe that uh, the Southern District of New York has brought against Michael Cohen. Aaron uh,
1: Brad, your thoughts on the Singh case, whether or not you think that the constitutional challenge to the law banning uh, interference by non-citizens in the state and local elections has constitutional merit, uh, regardless of its relevance to the Mueller probe. And then if you want to put on the table any other constitutional challenges to campaign finance laws that might be relevant to the uh, uh, tr- Trump investigations? Okay. I think
4: that uh, I, would, I would agree with Rick's analysis uh, on the case on the, um, uh, the Ninth Circuit. Uh, I think that the court is likely to uphold the statute, but even if it didn't, that decision would probably follow on federalism grounds, which would not uh, affect the uh, Mueller probe or the Southern District uh, action here. So uh, they'll, they'll probably uh, be able to make that, uh that probably won't affect this case. Um, I think that, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, we're going to. Con- what we're seeing here, in essence, is is sort of a uh, breakdown of the the kind of absurdity of some of the law uh, when we're trying to use campaign finance law so that we can learn about whether a candidate had prior affairs, which is something a candidate does not have a legal obligation to disclose. You know, we're, we're starting to, to get off the reservation, and, and we're doing it again in an area that has a, a lot of uh, First Amendment implications and a lot of democracy implications uh, that people uh, have... Uh, uh, you know, they, they vote for candidates, and we don't want to be re the elections by uh, coming up with all kinds of campaign finance theories. There are serious issues in elections, I think, and we're seeing them in the aftermath of 2018, as we do almost every year, uh, where we've got some very serious allegations of election fraud in North Carolina. Uh, we have issues around the country pertaining to the efficiency of the election administration. And so, you know, I, I continue to go back, Jeff, as I did earlier, to say, as much as some people, you know, want to get Trump, and this seems to be the legal means to get him. Everything else is kind of sleaze, but this here is the one legal thing that you can tie into. Um, it's, it's a dangerous business to start trying to use laws in that way and interpret them in ways that are outside of their ordinary and normal interpretation.
1: Thank you for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this excellent discussion. And Rick, the first one is to you. How serious are the allegations of campaign finance violations against President Trump? And how seriously should we, the people listeners, be concerned about them?
2: Well, I, as I uh, said earlier, I, I certainly think that if Trump were not Uh, The president and there weren't these complicating political and legal factors that he would be subject to indictment for what he's done. And the question would be one that would be left to a jury Um, in terms of how significant it is. I think I would leave the last word to the um, Southern District of New York prosecutors. I just want to read. Very briefly, what they wrote about Cohn's activities in their sentencing memo. They said Cohn's commission of two campaign finance crimes on the eve of the 2016 election for President of the United States struck a blow to one of the core goals of the federal campaign finance laws transparency. While many Americans who desired a particular outcome to the election knocked on doors, toiled at phone banks, or found a number of other legal ways to make their voices heard, Cohn sought to influence the election from the shadows. He did so by orchestrating secret and illegal payments to silence two women who otherwise would not have made public their extramarital affairs with individual one, that's Trump. In the process, Cohn deceived the voting public by hiding alleged facts that he believed would have had a substantial effect on the election. And I think that's really what's at stake here and why this really does matter and is not just uh, a witch hunt, as the president might say. Thank you very much for that.
1: Brad, last word to you. How serious are the campaign finance uh, violation allegations against President Trump, and how seriously should we, the people listeners, be concerned
2: about them?
4: Well, as I've indicated, as a campaign finance matter, I I think there's nothing there. It's worth noting here, again, that, for example, had uh, President Trump paid these expenditures out of his campaign funds, and as the Clintons paid the British by steel, they just paid their legal the uh, company called it legal fees. Trump probably could have done that and used campaign funds and paid this legal fees. That to me would be what much worse. We don't want the president using his campaign funds to pay hush money for mistresses, and had he done so, many of the people who are now arguing he's violated campaign finance law, and this is very serious, would be arguing that he had violated the campaign finance law by diverting campaign funds to his personal use, and that if he wanted to pay money to his mistresses, he should have arranged to pay it with non-campaign funds, which wouldn't have been reportable and wouldn't have been subject to any limits. So I think that, you know, there's this little bit of a gotcha coming, when we got gotcha you going but we're going to get you attitude. And again, I think that's that's very dangerous for the rule of law. Nothing um, in the law requires presidents to, you know, reveal their prior extramarital affairs. The press can dig them up. That's great, but that's not what these laws are for and and not what we want to uh, try to be doing in this particular case. So we have to say, you know, there there may be lots of uh, reasons to vote against Trump. There may be other things that he has done that would be impeachable offenses or would violate the law. But I think we need to be very careful when we get really enthusiastic about getting somebody, about deciding that this person is particularly bad, that we start using and misusing the law in ways that it's not intended to be used.
1: Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Brad Smith, for an illuminating, subtle, and educational discussion of the Technical but uh, important uh, campaign finance laws and their consequences for President Trump. Rick, Brad, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure.
1: Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And check out our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall. That's the feed of all of our phenomenal Town Hall programs at the National Constitution Center and around the country that spread so much light about the constitutional issues at the center of national debate. And always, dear we the people, listeners, remember, as you wake and as you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and all of this incredibly important work that we do Spreading light about the Constitution, inspiring people to learn about it, and educating people to converge around this great document of human freedom is made possible only because of the support of people around the country who share our mission and are part of our common work. So go to the website, uh, click uh, the membership bar, and join the National Constitution Center. We're also honored as the holiday season's approach to work at the National Constitution Center. My colleagues and I are so excited about the really important work of constitutional education to be done in the year ahead and so grateful that you, dear We the People listeners, are a core part of our crucially important mission. So happy holidays, and on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.